Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Small Biz Gone Viral, the neighborhood bar for small business owners waiting for a vaccine for their COVID-related business woes. The goal here is giving a realistic view of entrepreneurship by talking to small business owners about their plans for 2020, or at least what they were, what happened, and what's next. I'm your host, Grant LeBeau, small business owner in the trenches of those aforementioned pandemic commercial issues, and today's guest wheeling and dealing through her own COVID landscape is Jessica Bell, founder of ReVessel, the Tesla of food storage. But before we get to Jess, it's fun fact time. Yay! Today's fun fact is 71% of Americans now say they definitely or probably will take the vaccine when available. For those of us who want a quick and immediate end to the pandemic and all of its limitations and want to use modern science to make that happen... <sighs> This is good news. Hesitancy towards the COVID vaccine has been a troubling question mark in the U.S. and is something we've highlighted often on this show. But as the vaccine rollout is now in its second week, and we continue to see our Instagram feed flooded with frontline healthcare workers and politicians posting vaccine selfies, we are climbing towards that 85% mark estimated to be the threshold needed for herd immunity. All right, facts and figures time. And we start with more of the same. Stock market is doing great. S&P, Dow Jones, hovering in record territory, right around 30,000. Though, of course, that doesn't mean much to most of America. Unemployment has risen for the third straight week and is now higher than it's been in months, with 885,000 first-time claims filed just last week. Finally, though, some good news out of Washington, D.C., as the long-awaited second coming of the CARES Act was announced just this morning. It includes $600 stimulus checks and weekly $300 additional unemployment benefits. We'll have more details on that next week as things are finalized. Though it's certainly good news for the 10 million Americans unemployed as a result of COVID who have been waiting for this. Speaking of COVID... Things are as bad or worse than at any point since this started. Here in California, we have mandatory business closures tied directly to high occupancy rates of ICU beds, with some hospitals at capacity and shuttling patients to neighboring facilities. For an inside, on-the-ground look, we have with us today emergency medicine resident at UC San Diego, Dr. Ben Leota. He is here on his own and wants you to know his views do not represent those of UCSD. Dr. Leota. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Now, obviously, I wish you were here under better circumstances, but we hear on the news that things are really bad. And I often share stats about mortality, infection rates, current caseloads, etc. And I, I guess I think that big numbers don't always paint a great picture. So I'm hoping that you can help contextualize what things look like now versus even three months ago. Sure. I mean, I think the most concerning thing is we're just seeing such a rise in the percentage of people that are positive and such a rise in hospital admissions. It's There's just a limited number of hospital beds and a limited amount of staff. And when people keep coming into the ER sick and needing to stay in the hospital and be admitted and you don't have beds, we get these really unfortunate situations where patients are boarding in ERs or being transferred to other hospitals and it's not good for patient care and it's um, really stressful on the providers as well. And that's, I think, the most concerning thing. On the plus side, we have a little better of an idea how to deal with COVID, how to treat it and how to manage those patients. But that doesn't help as much when you run up against just finite limits. 
So speaking of those finite limits, last time I drove by UCSD, I saw lots of tents outside in the parking lot for drive up testing and ER overflow. Are we really so short on space that patients should expect to be treated in the parking lot? Yeah, the unfortunate thing is that a full hospital has all sorts of downstream effects on waiting times and ER times and everything else. Right now, the I guess the other important message is that uh, it's not just an issue of physical space for patients to sit and patients to lie down in bed. It's that you know an ICU patient requires so much expertise of nurses and respiratory therapists and pharmacists and technicians to take care of them that staffing is quite an issue. Um, I don't have 100% transparency into staffing at big institutions here, but not just a question of beds. It's a question of all those staff who are burned out after a year of dealing with this and um, at risk of getting ill themselves. Finding the staff to run those beds is a real issue. And on that topic of staff morale, with how much things like mask wearing have been politicized, is it frustrating to see firsthand the ramifications of that politicization? And does it take a mental toll to know that there's an alternate universe where everyone takes things seriously and adheres to CDC guidelines like six months ago? Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty depressing. It has been pretty depressing all year to watch all the politicization by people who don't see this face to face. You know, I would invite anybody um, who would rather believe what they read on Facebook or what they see on the news to just mentally come to work with me one day and watch people in extremis sick and um, critically ill from this disease to know that no one's making this up. And there is an alternate universe in which we just focus on the facts, you know, staying far away from other people, wearing masks, avoiding the time spent indoors with people that are not in your household does work. And it's depressing to watch people um, decide not to follow that relatively simple advice. I mean, I get it. It's difficult. It's tough not to be with family. I haven't seen my family in almost a year now, but if there is a year to take one for the team, take one for society, take one for yourself and just stay home, this is the year. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the tough part is when you see other people ignoring the, the CDC guidelines and you go, well, why am I going to make the sacrifice? Well, when everyone makes a sacrifice, it has to borrow your your terminology, kind of the downstream effects where y- you are less likely to transmit and be transmitted too. And so if everyone is doing that, good things will follow. Uh, Christmas is next week. What are your holiday plans? And do you have any suggestions for, he- for people finalizing their plans for the holidays? I am working Christmas and New Year's, but I think the guidance out there is pretty clear. Masks are safer than no masks being further rather than closer to other people is safer and being outside rather than inside is safer. So if I was off, I'd be inside with my household or outside wearing a mask and socially distance if I really had to socialize with other people. Dr. Leota, thank you for your time and thank you for all that you do for our community. Thanks for talking. And now on to our big interview. My guest today is Jessica Bell, a purpose-driven entrepreneur and founder of Revessel, a next-gen food storage brand that has been likened to the Tesla of food transport. Revessel advances safe, reusable, and intelligent food storage designs for conscious people who are on the go so they can pack and preserve their favorite food to take anywhere life takes them without dependence on plastic packaging and fast food. 
as a conscious capitalist brand that gives back to regenerative agriculture and ocean conservation, Revessel exists to be part of the story of healing our planet and people. Jess, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Grant. Now, the thing I love about the show is that I get to meet all sorts of entrepreneurs from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds. And I know that you have a particularly unique background that makes you uniquely qualified to found and run Revessel. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what got you to what le- what led you to be where you are today? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, so my background has virtually nothing to do with what I do now, <laughs> which is which is awesome. You know, it speaks to the fact that things can be learned. We we, we don't have this uh, fixed brain. We we aren't stuck where we're at. So I love I, I love sharing this story of, you know, I wrote on a three by five card when I was very young that I wanted to be a, a stay at home mom. I wanted to raise kids. So out of college, I worked for um, a financial services company developing in-house products uh, for our card members. Um, I worked for HSBC, which was one of the largest banks at the time, and um, did that for a number of years, which um, taught me a lot of grit, resourcefulness, um, you know, building things from the ground up, but it had nothing to do with hard goods or manufacturing. Um, after that, I worked for a startup up in the Bay Area for just a short while. It was probably the worst experience of culture fit and, um, you know, <laughs> adoring my job. It, it was none of the above. It was, um, you know, just like the grind going to, to work every day. So I decided to start my own real estate business, which I loved. I loved serving people. I loved helping people get from, um, you know, a dream to uh, buying their first home. And that's really where I focused until I had my first child. So after having um, my first son, Tyler, um, I decided that that was really the career path for me. I was going to, you know, raise my, raise my children and, and do it in a way where I could wear a cape. <laughs> so I, uh, I spent a number of years kind of phasing out of real estate. I still maintained my, my license so that I could help people close to me and ultimately Ultimately, um, you know, focused on on my family, and so I I did the you know I did the momming um, around the clock and said yes to everything. Which ultimately, um, you know, I think if you speak to any mom, you know, we all strive for greatness and we all strive to be everything to everybody, and that really led uh, me down a path of. Um, devastation of my health because I wasn't taking care of myself. So um, ultimately, that was sort of the the entry point to looking at what everything I knew about health, everything I knew about um, how I wanted to be present in my children's lives. And so, um, you know, that that actually was the the key for me to seeing um, that the way that I was living my life wasn't actually the way that was serving me best. And so I took a step back and realized that the condition that I was in was a very bad condition. I had actually um, 
been on the path to diagnosis of multiple autoimmune conditions. And, um, you know, I remember sitting on my couch one day after, um, you know, and probably another round of, of testing from conventional allopathic doctors and just being told that, you know, uh, it's probably just, you know, take this medicine and, and it'll probably go away and they don't really know what it is. So really, you know, not the investigative, um, medical care that I was looking for. And really at that point in time, as I was wondering if I was going to wake up the next day, um, or if I would be dead, um, you know, teary eyed and, and I should say more like bawling on the couch. Um, just wondering who, who was sitting on that couch. And so I, I kind of grabbed my life by the, (laughs) by the, um, parts and just decided that, um, I was going to do things a lot different. And that is really where, um, I think that the the purpose and the, and the courage and the boldness of of what I do every single day came from was a declaration that, uh, my children's life would be different than mine. And with that, the willingness to jump into the entrepreneurial pool. Yeah. And, and that was, that was more of a seed that was planted. I didn't know what it would look like. You know, I didn't know exactly what that, what that path was, but certainly the path that led there, um, was not linear. You know, it was a, right. It never is. Yeah. And I think that that's what people expect is that, you know, you know, one thing will, will lead directly to another and, oh my gosh, what a woven and kind of spiraling, spiraling, you know, the spiral had to happen and the sort of my rock bottom had to happen. Um, and I think a lot of people are living like that on a daily basis, which is truly unfortunate. You know, we have, uh, statistics around disease that suggest, you know, 60% of adults have a, a chronic disease and, um, you know, I know what I used to feel like and it, it certainly wasn't optimal. So right. following kind of that, that low point in my life and, and being on a path of, of um, resolving my underlying health conditions and creating, um, creating conditions in my body where my, where, where my conditions could heal and get back to a homeostatic you know, state, um, I found that I felt better than I ever did, you know, and I felt like I was more alive than ever. Wow. Well, I, I mean, first of all, I'm disappointed in our healthcare system that you felt like you weren't listened to and weren't taken care in the way that you deserve to be. It's there's so many problems, but that's a whole separate podcast. I am happy, though, that to, to hear that you were able to on your own um, figure things out and come out of it on, on the other side healthier and, uh, and and healed. And also that it then led to kind of planting the seed of revessel. And I'm interested to hear um, how that came to be and also to hear what it was like going through the, the, the process of starting a company without any, like you said, experience manufacturing hard goods specifically overseas. Uh, what, what, what has that been like? Um, yeah. So to go, to go back to the original, um, kind of transition, yes, that was kind of the beginning point. Um, I had to actually pause everything that I was doing, start recreating new habits. Um, you know, and one thing led to another there with, um, this belief that trying something new every single day would, um, you know, would, would be something that, 
um, it would would lead me down the path of of unknown. I wouldn't know exactly where we were gonna gonna end up. So I actually was creating food for myself that would promote healing. I was creating food for my neighbors that would that would uh, lead to you know better health outcomes. And it was at that point that I was overwhelmed. I was still in my healing journey, and so I paused and just took a step back and and realized that that's where the problem lie. Um, it was the convenience, it was the efficiency. So yes, that, that's how Revessel was born. So as we started this company, um, it was number, you know, uh, uh, almost double digits of ideas that we had ever come up with that, you know, had so much more of a backbone to it than any other idea. The other ideas were just like, oh, that'd be fun. And oh, that'd be really cool. And oh, wouldn't that be crazy? Do you but remember any whole- of those other ideas? Oh my gosh. Um, probably some of them had to do with pets, um, you know, and better ways to, to um, either walk or train or, you know, right. uh, deal with pets. Another one um, was more for the kids and something fun that would take waste and turn it into something that the, that the children could use um, in a fun way that was still innocent. And, and um, you know, so those are just a, a couple that come up off the top of my head, but this one, was one that we knew we had to pursue. And somehow by, you know, divine intervention, all of the things that we needed to at least start were falling into place. Um, You know, initial funding, uh, my husband's mother had just passed away. And for us, this was a way of turning her legacy into something meaningful. Um, She had actually passed away right before our eyes due to an autoimmune condition. And so for me, having that experience, then experiencing my own autoimmune condition was really a way for um, me to leave, I guess, no regrets and, and move forward without any doubt that, you know, that she was behind us in this. Um, so, you know, taking the first step, I tell you, it's, you know, you, if you have an idea, it's where do you go with that idea, right? So we ended up seeking um, consultation from a patent attorney, which led to um, the engineering team that you know made all of this happen. And um, this was a this was a huge partnership. And then you know, as far as sourcing manufacturers, um, you know, you, you have to get gritty and you have to really think about how do how, how do U.S. companies um, source overseas manufacturers? Because ultimately, if we would be able to, to manufacture in the U S and find suppliers in the U S that could, um, create a product that would allow us to sell at a reasonable price in the U S we would have. And that was my first approach. Um, it still is my approach as, um, we continue to, to grow is to continue to go back to our original plan. Um, but it's just not, it's not feasible at this point in time. Right. You can't sell a, a better for you Tupperware for, $300 or 500 (laughs) (laughs) right right yeah Yeah. a a tough time gaining traction there so one of the things that kind of strikes me is you're selling the the tesla of food storage which means every price every cut has to be precise every line has to be sleek basically everything has to be perfect as you are going making your initial foray into the world of overseas manufacturing how were you able to find and then oversee and manage the right manufacturing partner? And then, of course, we'll have to later get into what it was like or what it is like 
managing those relationships in the time of COVID when you can't travel to oversee it? Yeah, I mean, our approach was really based on the um, tenets of conscious capitalism, uh, which employs four, you know, four tenants, a higher purpose, which we had. But how do you how do you communicate that to the people that you ultimately ultimately are going to be having these relationships with? And so we looked at the stakeholder orientation as a way to communicate and convey what we were looking to do. So we started out with, here's our vision. Here's what we're producing. Here's what, you know, here, here are the requirements. And we had a lot of people walk away. Can't do it. You know, they were looking for the cheap, the, the easy, the cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what everybody else is producing. And we had original, we had, te- you know, Tesla or the higher end version that just wasn't a um, busted out, but required specific, you know, specific specificity around um, the process around, you know, the, it's a much longer process. It's a much more grueling process for them. And, you know, we still get pushback from our suppliers if you were just to change this and if you were just to change this, which would completely change the product, right. it would change how it functions. It would change the ingenuity of it. It would change the efficiency of it. And that's not what we, that's not what we started uh, out to do. So. Right. And now as we look to wrap up the pre COVID segment here and move into our mid COVID, where we'll talk all about how COVID has impacted your business directly and the adjustments you've made. Um, can you just confirm the timeline of when your first of, of when your product was first sold? W- w- do I have it right that it was 2018 October ish? Is that right? We sold the concept in 2018 to friends and family, a really limited number of folks that could ultimately um, kind of be waiting in the wings for their first product so that they could be kind of kept in the loop as to what was going on. So we, we kind of consider that a friends and family round, but ultimately they were, they, they were pre-ordering a a product. Um, Right. A a pre-order or almost like a a friends and family Kickstarter. uh, Yeah. Sort of like that. Um, But you know, we, we charged them and then we delivered that product. We delivered it um, a little bit later than anticipated. You know, this was our first time going through, we didn't have the headwinds of COVID, uh, but we still encountered a number of, of issues that we had to overcome. And then we ultimately delivered that in October of 2019 or started delivering that. And so ultimately when we were producing, we produced in small batches so that we could continue to iterate and make changes and evolve the product, which we did. And we continue to do that. So every, you know, it's like your, your iPhone one is very different than your iPhone 12. So, um, you know, we kind of consider that every new uh, round of, of production is another opportunity for us to look at our drawings, to look at, um, you know, how they work together and continue to look at accessories and things that will ultimately enhance the product's um, function and, and, and the features. Right. So just to summarize, it sounds like you came to market about a year after you did that first friends and family sort of Kickstarter. Yep. So you had three-ish months in 2019 where you had a, a fully formed product that you were able to sell. Mm-hmm. So you're headed into 2020 and it's just, it's you and your husband are the W-2 employees. The You outsource all the, the marketing and, and production and, um, and use contractors. But as far as in-house employees, it's just you, you and your father. Correct. Yep. Sorry, you and your husband. Uh, that's me. <laughs> me and my dad. So headed into 2020, 
what are your expectations for the year? Expectations are big. We had a lot of momentum going into 2020 um, as far as timelines. You know, within six months, we were going to have launched a new product right um, at the sweet spot for the seasonality of school starting. Um, so it would have been, you know, a, a trend line for us that would have had a, um, a, a big uplift as far as that new product is concerned, and then great opportunities with our existing product, which was um, seeing a lot of traction around the world from our Kickstarter campaign. So um, that, you know, introduced us to international distribution conversations. Um, it introduced us to possibility around retail. And we still didn't have at that time, we still didn't have the margins that would um, lend ideally to a, a retail setting. So, um, you know, that was still kind of more of a late 2020 initiative, but we were having those conversations with some big box stores. Right. I think that's a chicken in the egg situation that is actually pretty common in the, in the world of startups that are manufacturing a good, which is you need to produce a lot of something in order to have the price breaks to make it competitive but if you are continuing to iterate and and change and improve the product, then you don't want to commit to a gigantic amount of inventory. And also that, that presents a problem from a cash flow standpoint. And these are just, I think, common issues in, in the startup world. Yeah. So one thing that you probably don't hear on this podcast is... Ooh, yes, I'm excited. Positive stuff that has come about from COVID and... um right away, you know, as a new company, every, you know, kind of broken part of our, you know, no, nobody's perfect and no company is perfect, especially startups. You know, they have a lot of things that like, we'll address that after we address this, you know, in sequential order and priority. And every one of our issues that we were, you know, that we knew about needed to be addressed, uh, was under a, a, microscope. So we took this as an opportunity to, um, you know, to really dive in and look at how we can start resolving some of those issues. And margin was one of them. Mm -hmm. You know, our cost of goods was still really high. And we get that, that question, um, quite a bit. Well, well, why wouldn't I, you know, there's, there's a number of things. Um, but in order for us to, to, bring our price down. We have to bring our costs down. So we focused on that and we managed to, um, to make some changes in our supply chain, significant changes, some big risks at the same time, um, that brought our costs down in some cases by 50%. So huge. Wow. Well, first of all, congratulations on that. And second of all, I just wanted to establish the timeline for you and for Revessel because you are one of the few guests who was fortunate enough to be able to experience COVID twice, basically once in with your manufacturing facility overseas in China. And then of course, once it got uh, to, to America. Right. And we're not just in China, by the way, and we we're, 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 we're not going to be um, specifically in China forever. Just Right. One last question in this segment, what were your revenue goals for 2020? Yeah. So in 2019, we did about a quarter of a million, uh, including our Kickstarter campaign. So with the momentum leading into 2020, we were looking to quadruple that and, and uh, get to a top line number of about a million in sales. Wow. 
Well, first of all, congratulations on being able to hit a quarter of a million in your first year. I mean, that is just a, a tremendous accomplishment for for any small business. Never, never mind, a, 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 you know, producing overseas and just all the different obstacles that you had to overcome. Now it's time to move on to our mid-COVID segment. But before we do, as we do every show, it's time for our guests, Unsponsor. The Unsponsor is an awesome company run by awesome people producing an awesome product who doesn't pay for a shout out, but just deserves one because of who they are and what they do. So Jess, tell us who is today's show not brought to us by? <laughs> today's show is not brought to us by The Plot a restaurant in Oceanside. And really, this is a message around just supporting local restaurants and supporting owners who have put their heart and soul into a business. And what I love about the plot, um, it is also run by a husband and wife dynamic duo who are at the forefront of so many movements around zero waste, around plant-based diets. And so you know, as we look at our food systems, this is, they, they are the epitome of supporting local as they are sourcing from their local farmers. Um, they're actually growing food in their own garden that makes it to their restaurant and to their, um, you know, to their guests. And they're also looking at continuing to move the needle even during these most difficult times to reduce the impact that our food system has to the planet. So I want to give a big shout out to Jessica and David Waite of The Plot. Yeah. And one of the things that you and I had discussed before this interview was that ordinarily with the unsponsor, the goal is to have a company that listeners all over the country can support, usually with an e-commerce site. But we, we made kind of an exception because my goal is with this unsponsor, with The Plot, which I'm sure is an amazing restaurant, is basically just to, to bring awareness to the fact that there, there will be an end to the pandemic. And ultimately, the restaurants are a huge component of what makes up the soul and the, the fabric of a community. So when the pandemic ends, if you want there to be uh, Albert Burger, uh, King. <laughs> Burger King or Arby's or, you know, not to knock any of these big chain restaurants or Chili's or whatever. But basically, every time you go out, you have a chance to vote to vote with your dollars, which is an analogy I use often. But it, I think it's 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 true. You get to vote with your dollars as to what you want the post-pandemic community around you to look like. So go to the plot or whoever else your local restaurant is. Right. Right. And interesting statistics, one in one in 10 Americans is, you know, employed by a restaurant. Uh, the restaurant industry has uh, lost uh, projected $240 billion and, you know, like you and I were talking about yesterday, when a new town or a new area is being built up and planned, it's a matter of, okay, here's the housing, but what restaurants are going in? And that really is, is kind of the glue of a community where people come and gather. And, um, you know, this is just one example of uh, many in, in our local community who ha have struggled and continued to innovate and continued um, to adapt, but it has, you know, it, it has put everybody in that industry, um, uh, you know, put, put them out hanging on a thread. Right. So basically, in summary, shop small, shop local, do whatever you can, take out delivery if it's within your budget, 
to support your local restaurants. Absolutely. Uh, let's go ahead and jump back on that timeline train and have you talk about when you first felt the impacts of the pandemic and what those impacts were. Yeah, so something that's really important for us to, um, you know, to to have great relationships with our suppliers is to to sit face to face and and to touch and feel the products and to review the products. And so we were planning um, a site audit to a number of our suppliers in uh, late January. And so as we were looking ahead, and you know, we're booking probably about a month out. So as we were getting ready to, you know, to start booking. Um, there was some evidence that there might be some changes. First of all, there's Lunar New Year, right? So all of our factories are essentially shut down around this holiday for two to three weeks. So we plan for that every year and we're getting ready to, you know, adapt to that again this year. Um, so as we were looking at that after Lunar New Year ends is when we were planning to, to, to really have, you know, those in-depth meetings. And the, the cool thing about being in person is, you know, what would take us four or five weeks to accomplish when we're there for an entire week and, um, you know, talking with engineers and, and, and getting down to some really, really finite, you know, some, some, some meticulous details. Um, we're able to accomplish five weeks of work in a week. And so we started hearing rumblings in January that there was something going on, you know, there's, um, early signs of, of some, some health issues where um, travel may be difficult. And so um, we still had a, an active, you know, Kickstarter community, people who wanted to know what was going on. And we made a commitment to produce really in-depth updates um, monthly. And so for us, these updates were more focused on what was going on overseas, where our suppliers and, and manufacturing was taking place than around, you know, the actual, well, you know, how is this part turning out and how is this, you know, part turning out? So um, interestingly enough, that trip was canceled. <laughs> and then following that, we couldn't even get in touch with our suppliers for um, almost two months, like even contact, like what's going on? Are you guys okay? Type of thing. Wow. I mean, at the end of the day, you, you produce a widget. And you need a factory to produce that widget. And if you don't have the ability to produce that widget, do you even have a company? Is there even a way to continue to move forward if you, there's nothing to sell? Totally. Totally. That just must have been so incredibly stressful. I mean, we've certainly had our share of production issues, but at least we've been able to get our factory on the phone for a conversation or an email or, or whatever. Well, it's like kids with school, you know, kids couldn't go to school. These folks where their laptops and where everything was, they couldn't even go back to their offices. Right. So they didn't have the infrastructure to work remote at the time. And so it was basically this extended lunar new year. Yeah. Celebration because there's a, you know, a mass, um, you know, travel at that point in time where they're, they're, they're traveling. And so a lot of these folks were stuck where they were at or where they were traveling and couldn't get back. Right. So basically you were hit on the supply side of things because the factory that manufactures your products, the, the owners, the operators, they weren't able to even communicate with you, much less uh, operate those facilities themselves. Then moving on to the demand side of things, I know that you rely on uh, in-person events to generate uh, interest and demand. You have a, a 
a tactile sales experience because what you sell is such a high quality good. It, it obviously helps to have it be in person. Uh, how were you affected in, in as events like conventions were starting to get canceled as the uh, pandemic reached American shores? Absolutely. Yeah. So our last event was at the very end of February. And, you know, the markets that, that we address are, are absolutely around health, um, environmental health, which is, you know, looking at toxins and how toxins enter our body. Um, so that was, you know, that, that's a big area where there's tons of conferences around health and how do we, um, you know, from, from dietetics to, um, to naturopathic medicine. Um, and then there's also like the, the, the van life, uh, folks who are, you know, traveling in small spaces and compact storage that can do more, um, you know, to, to satisfy a lot of the, the kitchen gadgets or tools that you would need in a small space like that. Um, that's another audience. So that was actually our last event, uh, was February of 2019. And so, and, and how many events did you have on the calendar for 2020? Well, if you think about April, April's Earth Month. And so we had an event in Texas that was supposed to draw in about 400,000 people, which would have been a, a huge opportunity. And so a lot of that, that expected revenue was how we were going to continue the development of the product that was in line in Kickstarter. So it was the... Um, you know, it was the, the biggest complication that we faced was where to utilize funds. You know, how do we keep our own operations, you know, keep the lights on. Right. <laughs> so that we actually have a laptop to communicate and that sort of thing. Exactly. Um, but, you know, the, the stimulus funding that came through, um, it was really um, kind of a last resort for us. We really wanted to try to figure out a way to do it. And the stimulus funding was essential for us to then turn that right back around and get back to work with, um, you know, with the, with the development of our next products. Um, and then, you know, start mapping out how we were going to best use those funds to, um, to, to operate. And I, I know that things were obviously incredibly difficult for you because you relied on those events so much to, in, as a way of drumming up business. I just want to as, take a moment to kind of glass half full where you were in, in your timeline, because I think that you were, your business was probably one of the last early stage businesses to kind of get through the door and still qualify for that funding because that funding was based off of the prior years of revenue. So because you had three months, at least three months of operating revenue in 2019, at least you were able to qualify for that funding. Whereas so many businesses and people who I've had even on this show, they started their business, you know, at the, or at the beginning of 2020. And then three months later, after pouring their savings into, into their business, they're told, Hey, you can't operate and you don't qualify for government subsidies, funding, et cetera. Yeah. Really great point. The other thing that I want to mention is, you know, while we were, <clears throat> excuse me, while we were kind of um, gasping for air. We also, um, you know, we had inventory that we would have had at these events that we would have been selling. And we also saw early on the issues that were taking place with restaurants. So we saw the increase in demands for them uh, to accommodate takeout and curbside pickup 
uh, we saw ultimately what that would mean for human health and environmental health with, you know, food being hot food being placed into plastic and styrofoams and things like that. Um, and then just the, the increase in costs. I mean, you go from a portion of your business being takeout, which adds, you know, an additional, say, 30 to 70 cents per order, um, or I guess I should say per meal. And sometimes there's more with, you know, little ramekin cups, and then there's the cutlery. And so now 100% of these restaurants' business was takeout. So we wanted to plant a, a brand new seed around what it would look like to use reusable packaging. So we orchestrated um, activation around meal donations with five restaurant partners um, in the local San Diego area to deliver and distribute meals to frontline workers. Um, this took, you know, this took a couple months to put together. And then in Ju uh, July, we ended up launching our first meal donation. Um, so for us, this was a, you know, a, a give back opportunity. Um, it was also an opportunity for us to raise funds for these restaurants. Um, so we had multiple partners involved in this, including the restaurants, including, um, you know, UCSD Health, Scripps, um, and then a, an organization um, that is sponsored um, uh, it's called Frontline Foods. Um, sorry to blank on that for a minute. Um, so that was an opportunity for us to focus on some good and do some good in the community, have something positive to shine a light on, as opposed to everything being doom and gloom, you know, losses and devastation, but lifting up and, and trying something new. And while you were doing that in, in donating your product to the restaurants who were then serving their food in those containers were was that a way for you to kind of pilot the uh what you're doing now on more of a commercial level where the restaurants were were delivering food in your in your containers and then eventually reclaiming them back into the supply chain is, is do i have that right at the end we did kind of move into a phase two um cycle where the the containers were collected but initially they were donated they were given oh they were workers. Mm -hmm. yeah so some so the 90 percent of them were actually donated oh wow well first of all i apologize for that misassumption there um out of that donation process and the ability to reclaim those products did that help inspire what we're about to get into i think yeah just the the idea of a circular economy is, is foreign to most of us. You know, most of us grew up um, where we only knew plastic, we only knew single use, we only knew disposable. And there, there is so much more to our resources than just using them once and throwing them away. And what we don't often think about is, oh, you know, beyond, oh, this will just get recycled. You know, it has that, you know, that logo on the bottom, which right. doesn't mean anything about its recyclability no one knows or that mean. it will be recycled. What that, that identifies is the class of plastic or the, the composition of plastic involved. And so, you know, today we have a much different um, desire for, plastic to get recycled just because it's so cheap to manufacture a new one. And so we, we fail to look at the entire um, 
chain of custody from extraction of those materials to transport of those materials to, you know, the waste that's um, eliminated in these communities, these vulnerable communities that are, you know, breathing in these toxic chemicals. And then after all of that, it's used for about four minutes and then thrown away. Which is something that you are working very hard to change. Right. So what I thought you were doing with these frontline workers, you were actually just donating, which is obviously extremely uh, applause worthy and, and laudable. So how have you pivoted and what are you doing now to change consumer behaviors and eliminate single use plastics by partnering with retailers? Yeah, well, the, the, the first several donations uh, were actual donations. You know, they were donations of the food and the containers themselves. As we got to the end of that and really looked at what infrastructure is needed, um, we partnered with another um, organization that had the dishwashing facilities, the commercial dishwashing facilities that allowed us to put our containers through to sanitize. And then we returned these to our uh, first restaurant partner that is launching next week. Um, which will put us in December, mid-December at, um, you know, a, rest, a restaurant in Oceanside. So um, what this allows people to do is order online and say, I want this in a reusable container or, um, you know, call in and say, oh, by the way, I'm bringing in my reusable container. And what they'll do is they'll swap it out. They'll have a, a, a fleet of them already sanitized and ready. So it doesn't change the timeline for the customer. Um, what it does, though, is it strikes up a new conversation about our finite resources and how we better manage those as opposed to look at them as simply waste. So it's essentially like going to a brewery, whether that's beer or kombucha, and buying a growler that you can then come in each time and basically swap out the empty growler for the for a full one. Do I, do I have that right? They own it. So they own, they own this container. Yep. They own it. And then they can come in and swap it out for a new one next time. And, and really for us, this is a way for us to have a functional container that is not just great for at home use that can, you know, be built out into a system, but something that can then be deconstructed into something that serves as a takeout container that can be used at multiple restaurants. And we have multiple restaurants with the thumbs up that they're preparing for this. Mm -hmm. um, because again, when, when you have restaurants that are doing better, they're also doing better in what type of packaging they're using. So they're paying pretty high prices for high end, you know, better for you, but still, you know, disposable taxing resources, transporting, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they're paying high prices. So, you know, this investment up front is actually something that has a pretty reasonable payoff within six, six months to a year. So if this restaurant is planning on being in business in two years, they're actually going to be saving money over the course of time. Wow. So this is like a, this is like a win, win, win. I'm going to have a hard time figuring out all of the different ways we're winning here. Win to the power of six, possibly more. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it's, it's obviously, it's a win for the environment. It's a win for the consumer in so many different ways. Let's try to list some of them out here. It's a list for the, it's a win for the consumer because A, they can enjoy a cleaner environment with less waste. It's a win for the consumer because they get to utilize the product, the, the storage container at home. It's a win for the for the consumer because they theoretically should be paying less 
for the food every time that they go because their the the restaurant is uh, their cost of goods has been reduced because they don't need to pay for styrofoam every time. Yeah, we'll get we'll get this. So the first time you buy this at this restaurant, you get fifteen dollars off your first meal. So right there is already a significant savings. The other part that I'd be remiss to to exclude is the health factors. There's over twelve thousand chemicals in food packaging. And those have not been adequately studied. So this is a big part of what we advocate is the underlying toxins and the underlying health impacts of those chemicals as they migrate into our food over time. And there are populations that are at risk, you know, boys that are eating out often. Um, There's studies that have shown that decrease in testosterone as a result of these, um, you know, these chemicals that are, are blocking their body's ability to actually manufacture these, these critical hormones in their development. Wow. So see, I, I knew there was going to be a whole second tier of wins that I couldn't even list out yet. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, as we start to move into the post COVID segment here, which for the longest time, as I've been doing this podcast seemed like it was just never going to get here. Uh, it, well, it, it's finally on the horizon. The UK has been um, has been implementing vaccines for a few, maybe a month now. Uh, we're now in, our, I believe, our second week of of the vaccine rollout here in the US, going to frontline workers, um, some politicians, and uh, it, it seems like the end is finally uh, the light at the end of the tunnel is is finally within sight. Well, I think I, I think this is this is another opportunity for me to chime in here and, and just remind people that twelve percent of the U.S. is metabolic me- metabolically healthy. So we have a population that already is at risk for any adverse event or health event. So any exposure to a pathogen, you know, when we look at immune health. It, it is imperative to look at what creates that, that innate immune health. And my healing journey was not resolved because I was deficient in a prescription medication. So I want to, to look at what true health, you know, starts with. I mean, the, 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 and, and I'm not speaking against vaccines um, here. What I am talking to is where health begins and it starts with, you know, the ingredients that we put in our mouths and at the, what, what's at the end of our fork. And so, you know, in order for us to be a truly healthy nation, we need to look at how our food is grown. We need to look at the, the soil in which that food is grown. So that's just a little plug for kind of looking at more of a systemic approach to health, as opposed to thank God, big pharma's here to save us all. Well, I a hundred percent agree with you that eating, eat, eating right, eating organic, uh, understanding our, our food supply chain and, and all of the components of it, uh, is, is incredibly important for developing, uh, a more healthy culture and, and country as a whole. Um, I will also say that, you know, as, as a founder and owner of a, an organic, uh, gluten-free vegan company that I believe personally that the only uh, solution to basically solving my business woes is a quick and effective and efficient rollout of a vaccine. Um, 
because only when the the pandemic is over will we be able to fully return to our bus- to business as usual. And I'll also say that um, it's important that that people get vaccinated because there are there in order to protect the vulnerable populations who aren't able to. My question to you is: as the vaccine rolls out and we we finally beat this thing and we return to normal or whatever that new normal is, what are you looking forward to most? Oh gosh, interacting with customers again. <laughs> oh, amen to that. <laughs> that. That's a huge one. I we we do we miss talking to people about their needs, about their um, their desires, ultimately where they want to go and what they want to be doing, and how we can support them. That's a that's a huge one for us. Um, growing our team is another one, and being able to uh, we had a, a number of interns that joined our team. We didn't even get to meet them in person. It was so bizarre. Um, you know, we had a, a ten week. Um, kind of course for them. And, um, it was, you know, if you pause for a minute, it was, it was very uh, strange to think that there wasn't that in-person contact and that is, it's critical for, for long-term relationships. And I know that your company in particular really thrives in that in-person environment because of the tactile nature of your product. And people are able to see and experience those sleek lines and kind of get that, take that Tesla for a spin. Definitely. It's very much an experiential product. Yep. And just for reference, how far out are you seeing the conventions that you want to be attending being canceled into the future right now? Um, We're still looking at all virtual uh, in Q1 of next year, at least. Um, there's there's some smaller events that are outdoor type of things that could potentially, uh, but it, I think it really depends on, you know, outcome of, of the new president's, um, you know, wh- what, what direction he takes us. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what it's going to look like, but I assume that there will be a, a lot more kind of faith and emphasis put into the science and hopefully a... a, a elimination of politicization of things like mask wearing. But uh, I digress. Um, I think that looking ahead to 2021 and seeing what that looks like and, and hopefully, you know, the, the efficient, the effective rates of the, of the immunizations um, of the vaccines are as high as purported at that 95% rate. So in the meantime, though, California is back under three weeks of, of lockdown. Uh, there's no dining in allowed. It's all takeout or or delivery, which I feel like provides you with both a nightmare of the potential for, for food waste, but also perhaps silver lining is an opportunity um, for your products to kind of be the solution to all of that food waste, which I know is something that you're starting to roll out right now in partnerships um, with, with a handful of restaurants. Well, I want to remind everybody that restaurants are not the only providers of food. Obviously, many people go to the grocery store. And so when there is that uncertainty in the restaurant space, it's, you know, a bigger question of how do you get outdoors and spend time outdoors and not generate waste, but have good food on hand. And that's really another big opportunity for people to kind of get back to those traditions of chopping, packing food, and it doesn't require, you know, significant skill sets in the kitchen, you know, it doesn't require cordon bleu. It, it just requires a peeler and a knife to, you know, to chop up some food and take it on the go. Um, so having a better way to do that is, is critical at this point in time. 
and just out of curiosity, do you, do you know of any other restaurants similar to the plot who are doing uh, kind of the, the swap out of, of takeout uh, containers? There are, there are restaurants that are literally, we don't do any disposable. So you either bring your own or we sell them, you know, here. Um, there's a, there's a, a restaurant in Colorado called Somebody People. Um, there are companies, logistics companies that are, um, you know, kind of that third party that you order your food. They will uh, provide or supply the, um, the re- reusable containers and those will get filled up, delivered to a doorstep and then ultimately get picked up. So there's a company in San Francisco called Dispatch Goods. There's, um, you know, some companies and we usually hear from them um, because they're, you know, they're, they're looking at the available containers out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, with our materials, we tend to be on the higher end. So it's not great for the startup that is, you know, looking for, okay, how do I just get, a, you know, a safe stainless steel container out there? Um, what we find is that our dimensions and our geometry is more functional when it comes to like sandwiches and burritos and things like that. Um, so yeah, the, the short answer is that there are companies out there and, and um, there are pilots done with beverages and cafes. So um, we're hoping that this is kind of that fertile ground where things can be tested. And if there's ever been, a, you know, a, a time to test it's, it's now. Well, I'm looking forward to playing my part in that test and being able to support both Revessel and a local restaurant, The Plot, by taking out and buying your container through that through that program. And I'm also looking forward to seeing this sort of take off. I know it's kind of in its infancy and it seems novel, but it also is addressing a problem that I think that anyone who you know, is remotely aware of the environmental impact of, of or even just is like, has that little bit of kind of shock factor when they open their takeout and they, they feel a little bit of that guilt. My hope would be that this is just the par- part of a larger trend and goes to expand beyond the takeout containers, although it's obviously a, a phenomenal starting point as part of a larger movement. Yep. Yep. And we all from time to time for, forget our reusable bags to go to the grocery store. And this is just another way to kind of shift Right. Mindsets around, oh, I'm going to pick up my food. Yeah. You know, grab your bag with cutlery and container and water bottle and good to go. You've got your little kit ready. Right. Everyone doing little things like that can have a a huge net impact. As we kind of wrap things up here, I have one last question for you. I always say that and it's now for the last question. But um, we talked about what your initial financial revenue goals were, what, what what it was for 2019, what happened what was supposed to happen in 2020, what actually happened? Yeah, with, with the redirection of uh, where our focus and energy was, which was, you know, just kind of reconfiguring our supply chain, um, there, there, were, there was a lot more focus on operations as opposed to marketing and getting ourselves out there. So we, um, you know, we're looking at closing the year at less than, uh, uh, less than 10% of where we originally planned. Um, you know, December has been a great month so far for us. So we don't know how the rest of the month will go, but, um, you know, it's, it's been, it's been significant and we're, we're certainly not alone in that. And we just know that, that surviving and, and kind of getting through this turbulent time has been um, a really great learning opportunity for us to build resilience and, and kind of fix things that were broken. So we're, we're, we're willing to, to continue moving forward. 
Well, you mentioned that December has actually been pretty good for you. I want to keep that going. What is the best way for our listeners to support you and to get their hands on the Tesla of food storage? <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, we have our website at revessel.com and the RE standing for ripple effect. Um, and then vessel. So R-E-V-E-S-S-E-L.com and check us out on Instagram. Also, we love interacting with with, uh, you know, new customers there at Revessel USA. Revessel ripple effect. I had no idea. That is genius. And that just made me smile so big. I I love it. Um, Next time we have you on the show, you're going to tell us all about how you hit that million dollar mark. And in 2021, how you made it happen. uh, And about how many new restaurants are implementing your swap program to decrease waste in in takeout i'm excited to have you back on sweet let's do this again soon thanks grant thank you thank you to my guest jessica bell find out more about her company revessel and pick yourself up the tesla of food storage at revessel.com time now for my unsponsor aka a small business doing great things that didn't pay for a shout out but deserves one anyway Today's show is not brought to you by Salt and Serena, an online maker's market where you can learn about eco-friendly alternatives, shop sustainable goods from small businesses, bonus points, and grow together through their store and Siren Call blog. Just like with Revessel, the goal here is to replace plastic things with better for the planet items like bamboo toothbrushes and zero waste dishwashing block bars, all at saltandserena.com. Speaking of .coms, check out smallbizgoneviral.com for all episodes, updates, and a complete list of all my unsponsors, where you can get a great list of small businesses that would make for great gift ideas. Thank you, Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates for this theme song, worldometer.com for stats, NPR, Robinhood Snack, Morning Brew, and Statista Daily News emails, stats and story ideas compiled by the wonderful Kaylin Kwan. Someday this will all be over, Please help society and yourself by social distancing, washing your hands, and wearing a mask. From a small windowed office in North Pacific Beach, recorded and edited before and after work hours, I'm Grant LeBeau, and this is Small Biz Gone Viral. And we're back, as always, with a quick bonus lightning round. Jess, question number one. What is your biggest source of work stress? There's always something that needs attention. Question number two. What is a common misconception about your business? Uh, Two things. That, um, you know, there's a a, a cheaper product out there. And we're certainly not in a race to be cheaper. We actually want to stay in business and we want to be able to serve our customers with premium products. And um, I think that, yeah, I think that pretty pretty much sums it up. I'll I'll leave it with that one. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And question number three, what is something that you think that non-small business owners have a hard time empathizing or, or understanding about the nature of your work? Well, it's difficult to, to shut down. It's difficult to, to be um, out in the world and, and not be thinking about the business demands. 
because uh, uh, as I said earlier, there's always something that that that's needing and what feels like immediate attention. Right. I hear you, especially when you can do so much from your phone. It's so easy when you think you're going to be de decompressing on the couch. Oh, hey, maybe I'll just pick up my phone and just take care of a couple of quick emails. Yep. So the phone has to be set down away from me at certain times as well. You too? Yes. And because this is a happy show, theoretically, what is your favorite part about being an entrepreneur? Oh, I love hearing from our customers. I love reading sometimes very long emails, but things that touch on every single thing that we thought about um, that ultimately is is creating uh, joy and, and happiness in other people's lives. Ugh, just the perfect answer to end on. Thanks, Jess. Thank you for having me, Grant.